This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. I welcome you this hour to the Bible Line. If you are a first-time listener here at 88.7 FM or through the internet at wagp.net, for the next hour, we will be taking people's questions. Maybe there's a particular challenge or a theological topic or something you're trying to understand and apply to your life, family, ministry, church. If we can be of help by God's grace, we will do our best. All you need to do, again, is call us locally. The South Carolina 843 Exchange is simply 525-1859, or you can email us here directly into the studio, and the email address is TBL, that stands for the Bible line, T bl at wagp.net. If you call, we give live callers preferences. Some people prefer just to dictate. Others don't mind going on the air and others listening in. So let's go ahead and with that said, get started. All right. Good morning, Pastor Carl. Our first question comes from Christy out of Charleston, South Carolina, and she writes, someone close to me recently joined a Church of God congregation. I was curious about what type of church it was and what type of doctrine they taught. So I watched one of the services they had on their website. After watching it, I was curious about the practice of speaking in tongues. I grew up thinking people today did not speak in tongues. Would you go over this practice and the details surrounding it, such as when and where it started, what does the Bible say about it, and is it in practice today? Thank you very much. It's a great question, Christy. In the New Testament era, there were certain miraculous gifts, four in particular— Healing, miracles, tongues, and interpretation of tongues. There's 20 gifts listed in the New Testament. As I was sharing on Sunday, sometimes people might ask, well, are you a charismatic Christian? And sadly, that term was robbed by a movement in the 70s and 80s that by that, they redefined the term to mean those who spoke in tongues or believed in the miraculous. Well, I believe in the miraculous. Obviously, there's miracles all the way through Scripture, The question is, does God do miracles today through individuals? God can still do a miracle. He can supernaturally heal someone if he so chooses. God can do whatever he wants. But you see, there are certain miracles that God did through individuals at different times in human history. Uh, For instance, there's not a continual thread from Genesis to Revelation of miracles of God's men doing miracles. No, there was just some of the great highlights the great ganglions of spiritual history. Uh, For instance, no one did a miracle during Abraham, Isaac, Jacob's day. First miracles that were done were done through Moses. And then for a short time through Joshua, as the mantle was passed to him as they entered into the promised land. And then hundreds of years went by and no one did a miracle. None of the prophets, Isaiah, uh, Hosea, any of the prophets that bear a, a name, uh, book. None of them did a miracle. Now, if you had a miracle done to them, like Daniel, certainly, though he was technically uh, a prophet, as Jesus described him, 
he was also a political leader as well. He had a miracle done to him there in the lion's den. His three friends there in the fiery furnace saw a miracle done to them, but they were not done through them. And so it's not until Elijah and Elisha come on the scene hundreds of years after Moses when the people are in deep apostasy and darkness that God brings these two men to bring about repentance in the nation. Then no one does a miracle until the next cluster that is seen through the Messiah himself, the Lord Jesus, and his apostles and a few apostolic designates. And again, why did they do it? Well, a new time frame and revelation that God was giving, calling the nation of Israel and the Gentile nations to repent, to call on the name of Jesus for salvation. But one of the functions of miracles, according to Hebrews 1 and 2 Corinthians 12, 12, was to authenticate the messenger with the message that they preached. Now, a miracle in and of itself is not always an authentication because Jesus reminds us that Satan, as an angel of light, Matthew 24, can do great miracles and powers. In fact, the three words that were described apostolically of the men of God who did miracles to affirm them as a messenger. In other words, what made an apostle an apostle? Well, among other things, you had to have been hand-selected by the Lord. You had to have uh, not only been chosen by him, you had to have seen him in his resurrection body. And if those two things were true, then there would be signs that would authenticate that you saw him, that you were chosen by him. And Paul mentions that in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs, wonders, and miracles. And so if everyone could do the signs, wonders, and miracles that Paul said he did to separate himself from these other men who had come into the city of Corinth and claimed to be apostles, and his argument is meaningless, but it's not meaningless. But I say that these three terms, signs, wonders, and miracles, are also used in the Antichrist, lying signs, lying wonders, false miracles that are done by the evil one. The other two sign gifts that you are, so in terms of Church of God, they they will say, well, you know, God is giving me the gift of healing and miracles. Well, wonderful, but I don't think so. Uh, These were uniquely apostolic. Now, someone might pray for God to supernaturally heal, and he can, but there's tons of confusion here. And let me just say, one of the reasons, again, these were given was to authenticate the message with the messenger. And so the Bible is being written. And what's interesting is that church history indicates that when the canon of Scripture was completed, these miraculous sign gifts stopped. In addition, there was tongues and interpretation of tongues. The word tongues is the word glossa. It is always used of a real known language. In fact, there's only one place in all the New Testament when the very specific nature of tongues is described, and that's in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. And God gives us 15 different languages, glossa, glossolalia, and also he speaks of this word dialectos. We get our word dialect from it. So a miracle on the day of Pentecost would be, say, for me, uh, who knows the English tongue, to be able to speak all of a sudden perfect Chinese, but not just Chinese, but Mandarin Chinese, a dialect within the Chinese language. That was the nature of tongues, and people were blown away by it because there was 120 Galileans who spoke kind of a pidgin Aramaic who all of a sudden are speaking 15 different languages praising God. There were real languages. And so in the early church, 
uh, because, again, the canon of Scripture was not completed. They couldn't say, well, what does God think about marriage? Well, Paul hadn't written about Ephesians 5 and the role of men and women yet. So how would they know about specific topics? God would give direct revelation. And of course, he's very clear, only one or two in a service, and then only if someone has the gift of interpretation. Uh, It is unfortunate that the King James inserts a word in unknown tongue, and people use this to describe, well, this may not be a real language, this is an unknown tongue. It's in italics, it's supplied there by the um, interpreters, but in their context, they were writing it that if a tongue is not interpreted, it's unknown to the hearer. And that's why Paul is arguing for the need for, if a tongue is spoken, that uh, someone interpret the tongue in turn. And so he walks through that in, in 1 Corinthians 14. Only two or three in a given service, and then only if someone has the, the gift of interpretation. So it's a good question The scripture uh, records these miraculous gifts. And again, when the Bible was completed, there's no need for it. Think your way through this. Think your way through this. If someone today says, I have the gift of tongues, and someone even stands up and interprets something that virtually never happens today, um, then basically they're saying, this is a statement, thus saith the Lord. Look, you can't add or subtract to Scripture. So what does God do today? Someone, a preacher may stand up and exhort God's people, but if it's not from the Word of God, if he's taking away from Scripture or he's adding to Scripture, then he's in violation of the warning that God gives in the very last book of the Bible and the closing verses of the Bible that you can't add or subtract to it. What we see today that resurfaced around 1900 is nothing more than ecstatic utterances. And the ecstatic utterances that they speak are no different from what I witnessed in India, where you have Hindus who are speaking in ecstatic utterances. You have Hindus who faint on the floor. These other signs that uh, you'll often see in these uh, different circles like Church of God and other. And there's a number of Church of God denominations, Church of God and Prophecy, and uh, too many to name. But again, this is a misuse and an abuse of Scripture, and naive people are easily sucked in. You live in Charleston, so um, there's some good churches there that I might recommend. Uh, in sense, did she leave an email address? Uh, with she, her? she did, Pastor I, I'm going to send her um, from our Spiritual Gifts course uh, a section seven, which is on the sign gifts. And I think that will be really, really helpful to you, but you, you, you don't want to go to that church is what I'm saying. They're, they're, they're starting in confusion. Um, and it's not healthy. No church where they're speaking in tongues is healthy. It's just not healthy. It's just not biblical what they're doing today. And for those who maybe question what I just said, I've given it a lot of thought. Obviously, I did my doctoral dissertation on the subject of spiritual gifts. Uh, The title of my dissertation was the identification and development of spiritual gifts in the local assembly. And I, of course, deal with the sign gifts. But we actually have um, a speaker coming, Justin Peters, in June and he'll be speaking to this subject, and then a conference later in the fall with Justin Peters and Mike Gendron on dealing with deception and uh, some of the um, excesses that we're seeing in our day that people are easily being sucked into. Good question. Let's go to the next. All right, 843-525-1859. Again, that is 843-525-1859. If you have a question for Pastor Carl this morning on the Bible line, our next question, Pastor Carl, comes from Rebecca out of Auburn, Maine, 
she would like to know why the land of Israel is holy. Well, it's a it's a fair question, and uh, there are occasionally you hear people take objection. They say, "Well, you shouldn't call the holy land the holy land." Well, they're they're wrong. <laughs> they're just wrong. I and and the people who typically say that are folks who are embracing what we call replacement theology. But maybe we should define some terms first. What do we mean by holy? The word holy in Greek, hagios, means to be set apart. And it can be used in different ways. It can be used of positional holiness. When you are saved, the Bible calls you a holy one, a hageoi. It's plural, the saints. And so I am a saint. Uh, you say, well, you don't look like a saint. Well, I'm a saint positionally. God has declared me righteous, not on my human merit, but because of a great exchange that took place where he took my sin uh, upon himself. And when I came to him in faith, he gave me his righteousness. And so every believer is a hagios. He is holy. He has a new standing in the Lord. And so today you ask someone, are you holy? They might say, I'm talking about if you ask a Christian, are you holy? They might say, well, well, I'm a sinner. Or somebody else might say, well, sometimes I'm holy. Or somebody else might say, well, I'm supposed to be holy, but it's hard. Or somebody else might say, I am holy. In fact, I'm a saint. And in one sense, they would all be right. Because positionally, we are holy. We are set apart. But experientially, uh, this is the process of sanctification. God's desire is that we grow in our holiness, that we become more and more like Christ. And so in the present tense, Paul can say, this is the will of God for you, your sanctification. I just turned to Psalm 78, and in Psalm 78, uh, God calls Israel the Holy Land. So why should I call the Holy Land the Holy Land? Because God does. In Psalm 78, and I'm here in verse 54, so he brought them, the people of Israel, to his holy land, to his hill country, which uh, his right hand gained. And so God calls the land that he gave to the people of Israel holy. It's a set apart land. If you remember in Genesis 12, it's repeated in Genesis 15, it's repeated in Genesis 17, it's repeated to Isaac, it's repeated to Jacob. God made some promises to Israel and he promised them a land in Genesis 12, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are in the face of the earth. You only have I chosen among the families on the earth. And then he goes on to say that he has given them this land as an everlasting possession. And so the land, the holy land, is set apart. Why? Because on it, salvation history takes place. God chose out of all the nations of the world, Israel, to be the people through whom the Messiah would come. And so it's predicted that the Messiah would come to Israel, that he would be from the tribe of Judah, from the family of David, uh, that he would die in Jerusalem uh, as he's pierced through for our iniquity, that he'd be raised from the dead. Uh, he ascended into heaven from the city of Jerusalem. Why? Because it's a holy place. It's a set-apart place. In fact, the term Jerusalem appears over 800 times in the Bible. I think it's like 660 in the Old Testament and 150 or 146, I don't remember exactly, in the New Testament. And that's just the word Jerusalem. 
uh, over 800 times. And then there is words that mean Jerusalem, depending on the context, like Zion or my holy city or whatever. So it's upward of a thousand times. By the way, how many times does Jerusalem appear in the Quran? Zero, zippo, none. Uh, that's a made-up idea that uh, Jerusalem is their holy city. That comes centuries later. Nonetheless, God calls even his city, Jerusalem, holy. Uh, he refers it to his holy city in Psalm 48. Uh, even in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 4 refers to God's city as a holy city. And so it's set apart. It doesn't mean that all the people living there are holy by no stretch, but it's a set apart nation and salvation history will be completed through the land of Israel. Messiah is going to come back, Zechariah 14, where? To Jerusalem, where? To the same mountain he departed from, the Mount of Olives. In fact, when his feet touch it, he's going to split it in two. But we have these replacement theologians today that say God's done with the Jewish people. And so they will typically be the folks who will take issue about calling the Holy Land, that is Israel, the Holy Land. Well, they're just wrong. I'm not trying to be unkind. They're just wrong. And they are abusing the scripture in order to defend some theological position that they want to cling to with all their might. Look, all the prophecy for the first coming was literally fulfilled. What does Zechariah refer to when it speaks of 30 pieces of silver and a donkey and and the shepherd being struck and the sheep fleeing to three literal prophecies that the New Testament quotes that were fulfilled in Christ's first coming? His disciple betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver. He comes into Jerusalem on a donkey. Uh, he is attacked and, the sh- and all the sheep, the, the apostles flee. Literally fulfilled. How can we expect the prophecies for the second coming to be fulfilled? Literally. Uh, so when the scripture says he's going to plant his feet on the Mount of Olives and he's going to rule there from Jerusalem, that's what it meant. God said what he meant. He meant what he said. And so in this sense... It is still a set-apart nation. It's still a set-apart city, and and that's one of the reasons all the nations of the world are going against Jerusalem and Israel to this day. Great question. Let's go to the next. All right, 843-525-1859. Again, that is 843-525-1859. Our next question comes in as a live dictation, Pastor Carl, from Thomas out of Savannah, Georgia. And he writes, Pastor Carl, are you familiar with the book Bible Doctrine from Wayne Grudem, and would you recommend it? Uh, yeah, I'm familiar with it. I've met Wayne before. I've had some discussions with him in the past. He's a good brother. Do I agree with everything he says? By no stretch. Um, uh, he's charismatic himself, uh, so he's a closet tongue speaker. Uh, nonetheless, uh, he's a brother in Christ, and so I don't dismiss him for that. He's defended a lot of good things. He started an organization called CBMW, uh, which is an organization that defended the um, complementarian view of the sexes, that while men and women are equal, they have complementary roles, that the man is indeed the head of the family, that women are not to be preachers, that God has given them a different role in the church, that there are some things only men can do, other things only women could do. So he wrote some good things in that, certainly not alone. There have been uh, systematic theologies that have been done for several hundred years that cover the same issues. Uh, But he wrote it certainly on a popular level, 
Um, and for that reason, I suppose a lot of people have bought it. I wouldn't recommend it as my first choice by any means, but if you want to know sometimes where another position is and how they come to that conclusion, you can read it. That's one of the things we did well at Dallas Seminary is that in those days, you not only studied, say, the position of the seminary on a particular issue, issue, like, for instance, I've mentioned one already, that God's not done with Israel, uh, that supersessionism or replacement theology should be rejected. But then we studied those teachers of the Bible who said that the church has replaced Israel, and what verses do they use, and how do they come to that conclusion? So in that sense, I have Wayne Grudem's uh, big, fat, volume, systematic. Um, I would recommend some others. Uh, Paul Eines wrote a simple systematic uh, theology on Moody Press that might be helpful. Uh, Charles Ryrie wrote one called Basic Theology that might be helpful. That's a single volume. There's an eight-volume work that was done by Lewis Sperry Chafer on systematic theology, and so he has like a volume on angelology, a volume on Christology and soteriology and pneumatology, and those might be helpful. It just depends how deep you want to delve. I would probably encourage you to start with Eins or Ryrie, because even those two, even though they're only one volume each, they touch on the other positions in some of the verses that are used. and a more detailed systematic theology, they may delve into the contextual usages of those passages and how they can be misinterpreted if you miss the context or you don't let Scripture interpret Scripture, or if you don't use a consistent hermeneutic. So anyway, Thomas, I appreciate that question. It tells me you're interested in studying God's Word. Hey, listen, this might be helpful to you, Thomas. I offer a course of study at search the scriptures. It's called the Institute of Biblical Studies. I teach it on a master's level. And so, for instance, there's a course on bibliology. It's 500 pages of notes. Uh, So it's very, 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 very detailed. You know, like how we got our Bible. Why do we have 66 and the Roman Catholic Church has more books than we have and the Orthodox Church has even more than they? How, How do we get to 66 books and What about inerrancy? Because people use terms like inspiration and inerrancy even on their websites, and they don't believe it in the historical way. There's actually 10 views on inspiration. I walked through those. There's a church in town because I questioned the, the pastor's belief on the authority of Scripture, so they added inerrancy to their doctrinal statement. The only problem is they don't mean um, historically what Christians have affirmed by biblical inerrancy. So it's important you understand these terms. I have a course on Christology. I have a course on angelology. Uh, I have a course on eschatology and times. Uh, so there's all kinds of courses that are available very, very in-depth if you want to study. So And it's for free. We don't make any money off of them. It's for free. You can download all the messages, all the handouts you can print out. If you want hard copies, then you have to pay because it costs us money, but it's all for free. Anyway, good question. Let's go to the next. All right, 843. By the way, let me say to Thomas, Thomas, (laughs) I have a commercial here for you. Follow me on YouTube. Go to YouTube and type in the search bar, search the scriptures, and you're going to find a lot of helpful theological shorts, and we're going to start adding some three to eight to 10 minute shorts as well on really pertinent, critical 
uh, things that will stir your mind and get you thinking further. And, and I'm not here to build a name for myself. God knows that. And I'm not certainly here to build an internet um, income because we don't do commercials on our YouTube things. So we don't make any income off of it, but we're trying to get God's word out to as many people as possible. And so when people follow us, become a subscriber or like us, maybe someone listening right now, go to search the scriptures, type it in at YouTube and follow us and, and you'll get a lot of helpful information. Let's go to the next question. All right, Pastor Carl, 843-525-1859. Our next question is a little bit long, Pastor Carl, but a genuine nonetheless. It comes from Ron out of Ruffin, South Carolina. He writes, Pastor Brogy, recently a lady, a lady who attends my local church who posted links on her Facebook page to a couple of articles that were saying the word for homosexuals was translated incorrectly. It went on to say that homosexuality was never spoken about as a sin in the Bible. Then the articles went even further to say that LGBTQI plus Christians should deal that Christians should deal with heterosexual Christians with love because we have been lied to for so long. While I know this is a heresy and that God's word clearly describes homosexual activity as an abomination, I would I would ask, how should I approach or deal with this lady in love? She has just taken an assistant youth Sunday school teacher position and leads the children's choir. I do not know if I feel comfortable with her teaching our kids. I feel as her post could influence the word and even some babes in Christ to condone sinful activities and that she is an extension of our church and she is misrepresenting our church beliefs. I believe this was all prompted by a Bible study we had where we discussed a breakdown of the modern church and the acceptance, the acceptance of homosexual pastors and how our church would pull out of sanctioning that, that belief if uh, it came down to it. Thanks for your help and time. May God continue to bless you and your ministry. Well, you have some really, really important concerns here. Listen to what Paul said. Be on your guard for yourselves and for all the flock. He is speaking to leaders, pastors, who live in the city of Ephesus, gathered these pastors over the Ephesus church, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you. He's talking about members, church members, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. So look, this lady needs to be confronted. And the pastor and the elders or the deacons or whatever your church polity is needs to confront her. She should immediately stop teaching children's choirs. She should immediately stop teaching youth in any capacity. She should stop teaching in any, and she should be confronted. And if she does not embrace what the Bible says, then she should be removed from the church following the steps for church discipline. Uh, This is a serious, serious issue. And so you should be deeply concerned. Uh, There's an argument that I just made its ugly head again in 2022 There was a movie that was entitled something like 1946, a mistranslation of the term homosexuality. And it's made a lot of press and come into a lot of different circles. And the basic thrust of the argument, and they interview like this pastor, I think he was an SBC or no, he was an independent Baptist pastor and his daughter and his daughter said, well, you know, my dad teaches something that came from a mistranslation of the Bible and 
and homosexuality, that word was made up in a translation in 1946. Well, let me just respond to that. Um, let me just read, for instance, from 1 Corinthians 6, where I've turned, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. It's not that there's not any hope for the fornicator or the adulterer, the drunkard, or any other kind of sinner. He just gives a sample list because then he says, such were some of you, but God saved you. He washed you, sanctified you, justified you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. And so it's an issue here. Well, let me take the second word. There's the word effeminate, which uh, some translations render male prostitutes. And then there's this word homosexual. So let me deal with the argument of the film. And by the way, the word homosexual is the Greek word arsenoiketai, arsenoiketai. It's made up of two words, arseno, which means a male, and the word coites, we get our, our English word coitus for sexual intercourse from it. Coites means a mat or a bed. So literally, uh, the Greek word that is found here in 1 Corinthians 6 and in verse 9 is the word male bed, a male bed. And so one of the things that if you have what you call a, a literal translation of the Bible, there's different types of translations. There's dynamic equivalents and there's a formal equivalent. King James, New American Standard, ESV, they're more what we would call a formal equivalent, trying to take a single word if you're able to uh, and translate that single word from the original language into the receptor language. So a male bed would be like three words, um, but that's the thought behind it. Uh, a male-only bed is the thought behind it, or a bed for males. Everyone knows what's in view. And again, words can have sexual and non-sexual meanings. You know, if I said, well, I bought a new bed, you know what I'm referring to. I bought a new maybe mattress or you know, a frame or whatever. If, if I said, well, he went to bed with her, then you know it has a sexual connotation. And Paul is speaking here of wrongdoers. And so what the argument is in this new film that has come out, that many naive people, because they want to embrace perversion, at least on a soft or a hard level, there's all kinds of ways in which it's walked in the front door of so-called evangelical churches contextually, he is dealing with sin, with wrongdoing. And so they say, well, Paul is dealing with, um, you know, sexual perverts, not even necessarily a homosexual, maybe a heterosexual pervert, or he's dealing with uh, someone who's a homosexual rapist or, you know, look, that's not in view. That's not in view. And you don't even you, you don't even have to use this one text of Scripture. You could go to a number of other passages. In fact, some would say, well, Paul made up this word. He didn't. There's a Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's called the Septuagint. You will often see it referenced in the New Testament. And if you have a, a Bible with marginal notes, they'll put LXX out in the margin and that's an abbreviation for the Septuagint because 70 men were involved in the translation of the Hebrew scriptures into Greek, which was a major language for most Jewish people by the time the Roman Empire had come into place. And so Paul 
took the word that was used in the Septuagint, Leviticus 18.22 and Leviticus 20. Again, the scripture is so clear. For a male to lie with a male, it's an abomination. Uh, Look, I don't need the word homosexual to understand that. Or in Romans 1, it says, uh, therefore God gave them over to the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, so he's drawing a parallel, also the men abandoned the natural function of the women and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. He's talking about male beds, male-only beds. Uh, That's the word that we render homosexual. So if you don't like the word homosexual, then translate it as the King James, sodomy. Again, you're trying to find a word that communicates it. Um, You have other translations that will take the word uh, homosexual and the word effeminate and homosexual uh, like um, they'll say homosexual partners and dominant homosexual partners. In other words, the passive party, effeminate, sometimes male prostitutes like in the NIV, or the dominant member. And so in a male relationship, is he the wife or is she the hus- is he the husband? So you know what I'm talking about. I, I want to be careful here because we have a lot of young people who listen to further their uh, theological understanding of passages. This lady is way off base. She should be brought into the pastors and deacons or the senior pastor and the elders and confronted. And if she is going to promote this error, she should be removed from the church. And if your church doesn't have enough moxie to exercise theological discipline on this woman, and God speaks of theological discipline in a number of passages. Let me give you a few. I'm turning now to Romans uh, 14th chapter. And Paul, for instance, when he writes to the church at Rome, and he brings in this incredible book for a landing, he says, I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching that you have learned. Turn away from them. Whoa, that's pretty clear. What would that include? What he said in Romans 1 about men being with men and women being with women. But you see, what this woman is doing is she's now saying to the church, we need to apologize for what we have taught. No, we don't. We need to stand firm for what the scripture says. Remember, the coming of the Son of Man will be like the days of Noah. Remember that at the end, men will fall away from the faith there will be growing apostasy, and that's the day that we are living in today. When Paul writes to Timothy, if anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he's conceited and understands nothing. Look, over and over and over again, Titus 3, 10 and 11, uh, 2 Thessalonians 3.14, Revelation 2.14 and 15. These are all verses that speak of removing false, poisonous doctrine from the church. I would be enraged 
if I knew someone was able to get into our youth ministry and teach these. Such people need to be screened, and it sounds like you don't have a good screening process. You know, if someone's going to teach youth, we have an application and all kinds of questions they want to answer. They may not be advocating same-sex attraction uh, or even homosexual relationships as being okay, Um, but they, they, they may say all those things are wrong, but they're watching dirty movies. They're drinking alcohol. I'm not going to let people like that teach our youth. And so Ron from Ruffin, um, give this audio clip to your pastor. Get him to listen to it. If he wants to call me, I'll speak with him. And if they're unwilling to do something, I'd leave the church immediately. I wouldn't waste another Sunday there. All right, 843-525-1859. Again, that is 843-525-1859. If you have a question for Pastor Carl, Our next question comes in as a live dictation from Emmanuel out of Jonestown, Pennsylvania. He writes, Would you please talk about the grace of God? I attend a church who teaches heavily on it, but there is a lot of sin. Should there be a balance of teaching on the grace of God and the righteousness of God? Well, it's a good question, and a lot depends. Um, I don't have you live to probe a little bit deeper in terms of what you mean there's a lot of sin. Uh, we're all sinners, and we're in the process of sanctification. But if you mean that the church is teaching the grace of God, and as long as you're saved by grace, that it doesn't matter how you live, and that's one of the extreme abuses of God's grace. It's called antinomianism. Anti means, of course, against. Nomos is law. So it refers to against the law. That is to say you can be saved by grace and works don't matter. I often, in fact, I wrote a booklet, Would You Like to Know God as Your Friend? And I give various responses that folks will share as to why God should let them into heaven. And one response is, I don't know why God should let me into heaven, which tells you they're lost. The second response is an answer of good works. My good works should get me into heaven. That would tell you they're lost because the Bible says we're not saved by works. And if someone thinks they are, then they're still lost. A third slippery answer, it's taught in Roman Catholicism. They wouldn't deny that Christ died, was buried, and was raised. They would say your faith in Christ plus the good things you do, I call it the Jesus Plus program, will give you salvation. That's wrong. That's gross error. That will damn someone. And many people in Protestant churches think the same thing. Now, the scripture would say faith in Christ alone, meaning not to trust him to keep you safe tonight or to pay the bills this month, but something he already accomplished, what's called the gospel. The Bible says the gospel is the power of God for salvation, and the gospel is defined as the death, burial, and the resurrection of Christ. And so when you put your faith in Jesus, who died, was buried, and was raised, when you put your faith where God placed your sin on Christ, there's an exchange that takes place. He takes your unrighteousness. He gives you his righteous standing. You're justified, declared righteous, and good works follow. And so antinomianism, or what sometimes people call the grace-only movement, says faith in Christ equals salvation and good works don't matter where the biblical position would say faith in Christ alone equals salvation plus good works, that good works are definitely the fruit, not the root of conversion. And sometimes in uh, some places they don't add a hundred works or a thousand works, but a single work. That's what Paul had to deal with in Galatia. 
They, they didn't deny that Christ died, was buried, and was raised. They just said it wasn't enough. You, in addition, must um, add something to it. And in that case, it was circumcision. Today, it be the Church of Christ or Compassion Church in Savannah, formerly Savannah Christian. They teach baptism saves. No, it doesn't. That's gross error. That's adding to the finished work of Jesus Christ. If you add anything to the finished work of Jesus Christ, you're in error. You're teaching another gospel. And Paul said, if someone comes to you, even an angel, and they present to you a gospel contrary to the one that was initially delivered by the apostles, he is to be accursed. He is to be anathema. Interestingly, the Roman church made over 100 anathemas against Bible-believing Christians who taught that we're saved by grace alone. So we're not denying that works are not the fruit. Listen to this verse. This is from Titus 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. In other words, when Christ died, he didn't die just for the elect. The atonement was not particular. It was an unlimited atonement. He died for all men. For God so loved the world, that's God's grace, dying for all men. And the argument is consistent in Romans 5, just as through one man, Adam, death spread to the whole world, even so through one act of Jesus, he provided a way of salvation. He qualifies it to those who receive the gift in that chapter, but nonetheless, his death was for all men. John underscores it. He said, if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, uh, Jesus Christ, the righteous, who's not only the propitiation for our sins, but for those of the whole world. So the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us. So while it appeared to all men, he made a provision for all. It only instructs us, those who believe, to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. That's what an encounter with grace does. It changes you. In the oft-quoted verse, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And then verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Now notice the balance. We're not saved by works, but we're saved onto, the King James says, or for good works. And that's, again, what conversion does. It changes your life. In this same book in Ephesians, he says, for instance, when you come to the fifth chapter, for this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them. Is it possible for a Christian to commit some of the things he just mentioned? Absolutely. And this is why Paul in Galatians 5 will say, I say walk by the Spirit that you may not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh, here contextually, the sin nature sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. There's an inner war that the new birth brings. Um, but then he says the deeds of the flesh are evident. He lists them, immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envy, and drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, in case I miss one, of which I forewarn you, 
just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Again, he's not speaking of perfection because the exhortation in the beginning of this paragraph is depend upon the spirit so that you won't live by the flesh. But if this is the direction of your life, then you've never met Christ. People who practice such things, who live this way as a lifestyle, they have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. In fact, the next verse is those who belong to Christ, those who are really saved, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Why? Because the grace of God that brings salvation instructs us. So if there's, look, every sin does not warrant church discipline. That's a whole nother subject in itself. But if there are people living, say, in open immorality in your church, and folks are looking the other way and say, well, they're saved and it doesn't matter, then that church has some serious issues. And so the Bible does teach church discipline. The issue came up Sunday night at Meet the Pastor, a meeting I host a couple times a month for our visitors so they can come and understand our core values and I can answer questions they might have. And, and I said, well, in the 30-plus years I've been the pastor here, I've exercised church discipline over 50 times. Now, most of the time, folks don't know it because if your brother sins, you don't go tell your friend and say, pray for so-and-so. That's just a Christian way of gossiping. Uh, No, if your brother sins, you reprove him in private. He's talking about born-again believers and how we deal with one another. If he doesn't listen, you take two or three. And so most of the time, church discipline stops at the first and second level. Occasionally, it doesn't. And so in that case, you take it to the whole church. We typically, when we would exercise and when we do exercise church discipline amongst a member, we do it on a Wednesday night because that's family. Those are our committed core. We let them know. Bring it to the church. And if he doesn't respond to the church's prayer and exhortation, then they're removed from the membership. So I'm assuming you're responding to those who have thrown the baby out with the bath bath water, the grace-only movement, who say that, Um, once you're saved, it doesn't matter how you live. No, it does. It's the evidence that you've been born again. Good question. Let's go to the next. That was from Pennsylvania, Emmanuel. Good question. Yes, sir. Uh, Our next question, Pastor Carl, comes from Joshua out of Bluffton, South Carolina. Uh, He writes, does prayer change the mind of God? I understand that God calls us to pray and it pleases him when we do so, but I've always been taught that God never changes, as found in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 29, I have also heard many people say that prayer changes everything. What are your thoughts? Well, again, there's always this balance between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. I just finished preaching the book of Malachi, and one of the verses that we studied in depth was Malachi 3, 6, where he says, I, the Lord, do not change, and therefore you descendants of Jacob, you're not destroyed. God made an eternal covenant to Israel, going back to one of the opening questions today. Uh, James, a book I preached some years back, every good and perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change, the Bible teaches, and as you referenced in 1 Samuel 15. And yet you read places in Scripture where it says God relented or or that he, quote-unquote, changed his mind or he repented, depending whether you're reading a fluid translation or a more dynamic equivalent translation. Uh, And those are what we call anthropomorphisms. That is, 
human characteristics are attributed to God so that we can understand what he is trying to accomplish. And so like in Genesis, during the time of the great flood, the Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth and his heart was, was sad. You know, he, he, he was grieved. Um, did God make a mistake? Of course not. He gives man a free will. In Exodus, it says the Lord relented and did not bring the disaster upon the people that he had threatened them with. Um, and so uh, we just studied not long ago the book of Jonah, and we saw how God relented. Why? Because the people repented. And so sometimes there are some conditional promises that God makes. I'm going to bring judgment on Nineveh. 40 days, it's going to be destroyed. But it's a conditional promise because he's sending Jonah to invite the people to repent. Why? That God might not do it. It's conditional in nature. And if man repents, he can make a difference. Likewise, there are other unconditional determinations that God makes. Second Samuel concerning Israel uh, he is going to seat someone on David's throne, a throne that will be established forever. An unconditional promise would be Jeremiah 31. And it's, I find it interesting that the statement in Jeremiah 31 is in the context of being born again or becoming a, a participant in the new covenant, which Jeremiah, if you know the prophet, he is speaking of the time of Jacob's trouble, what the New Testament calls the tribulation period, where this is going to become a reality for the Jewish people. And yet he came to his own, his own received him not. Only a remnant responded as we covered last Sunday in our final sermon in the Malachi series. Um, and yet God didn't dump Israel because in that context of this new covenant where they will be born again, they'll all know me from the greatest to the least. He closes the chapter with an unconditional promise that God who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars by night, who stirs up the sea and all the waves, the Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel will also cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I will also cast off all the offspring of Israel. Look, there are some unconditional things. And so, Prayer can make a difference. Why? Does it change the mind of God? Well, if it's a conditional promise, the answer is yes. God can change what he may be said because it was a conditional uh, statement uh, that had uh, a conditional promise attached to it. Anyway, uh, good question. Uh, you're thinking, and this is a great thing. Let's go to the next question. All right, this will be our last question, Pastor Carl. Our next question comes from Andre out of Zebulon, Georgia. And he would like to know how he can order your study on angels or any other material. You know, that's a great question. So you can uh, go to search the scriptures. You should download, um, Andre, uh, the Search the Scriptures app. Go to the app store, type in Search the Scriptures. It's kind of a blue triangular shape, and you'll know that's the app. And download it, and that way you can listen to several thousand sermons that are posted online. Entire courses that I've taught, for instance, Angelology, which was divided into two halves, Angels for Us and Angels Against Us. Angels for Us deal with what are referred to as elect angels or holy angels. Angels against us refer to those angels that rebelled against God. Out of all the angels God made, 
millions and millions of them, one third of them rebelled against God under the leadership of a holy angel named Lucifer. That was actually his pre-fall name. It means morning star, uh, who became Satan or the devil. And there's a number of terms that are used to describe him. Those are the angels who are against us and there's a real war. So you can listen to it while you're out mowing the grass or you could uh, download, which I would recommend the handouts and make it maybe part of your quiet time or personal Bible study and work through some of those courses that are available. Some of them I'd like to redo because I just did so many years ago, but the material is still relevant because God's word never changes because God never changes. And so it's, it's important. This Sunday, we do have a guest speaker. I'm looking forward to hearing him, Dr. Mark Coppinger, former president of a major Southern Baptist seminary. He's written about 20 books, thousands of articles for major Christian publications across the world. He is a great theologian of our day. He'll be speaking in the 9.15 and 11 o'clock worship service this Sunday. I'll be leading us in the Lord's table as well. So if you don't have a church home, I would invite you to Community Bible Church. Our Buford campus uh, is on 638 Paris Island Gateway. We have two services at 9.15 and 11. They're identical. And so I would invite you to come to one of those services. We also have campuses in Graniteville, which is in Aiken County. And we have a campus in Jasper County in Grays, South Carolina. If you go to communitybiblechurch.us, you can find directions for those three campus locations. And if you can't do that, call the church at 525-0089. And they'll help you and they'll send you a coordinate that you can put in your phone to get you there. Well, we're out of time. We're so glad that you could join us today for the Bible line. I hope you will walk with Jesus Christ. And again, if you don't follow us on YouTube, go to YouTube in the search bar, type in search the scriptures. That would be a great help to me if you want to help me spread God's word. God bless you as you walk with Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm.